Good morning, Centerway Church. I'm Tara. I'm so excited for today and thankful to be gathering with you online this morning. Welcome to everyone gathering on our Sunday morning live platform and those gathered in watch parties. And hello to those who are watching or listening to this later in the week. And a special welcome to those of you joining us for the very first time. We trust that even online, you feel at home here. In hopes of making your first visit a little easier, I'm gonna run through some information that we share every single week. We trust it will help you, our guests, and everyone else know a little bit about what to expect as we gather and how to engage if you're on the live platform. The live platform has many options for you. You can share your information with us or update your information. There's also a tab to give, to take next steps, find previous messages, and to share this message. You can also request prayer right on the live platform and one of our hosts will answer you privately in a separate chat. If you're watching or listening to this message later, you can do all of those things through our website. If you have questions or need assistance or prayer or know someone who does, we'd love to help in any way we can, whether it's related to the pandemic or just life in general. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com. We have many resources available to go along with the message you're about to hear that will help you grow no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. They are crafted to remind and take you deeper throughout the week. A few to note are the Monday, Wednesday, Friday devotionals, which you can sign up for on the Next Steps page of our website. We provide wallpaper images to remind you of the weekly application question, and we have a message just for kids. They will actually hear me sharing a message with them, and they'll be learning from the same scripture that we learn from. If you have kids in your home, talking about the message and application question is a great way to grow as a family. All the resources I just mentioned and more are available on our website. If you are on our email list, hopefully you saw that we are offering free Christmas mini sessions for our Centerway families. We have some incredibly gifted photographers in our church, and they are offering their time to provide these 15-minute sessions for you. In future years, we'd love to use this as an outreach and a gift to our communities. For this year though, because of COVID restrictions, we're not widely promoting this. However, if you have family members or neighbors that would enjoy this, please feel free to either forward the email or direct them to the calendar page of our website. If you haven't received an email and you would like to, email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com and we'll add you to our list. Now here's what to expect for today. Hannah will be reading the scripture text for us, Claude will be communicating from the Bible, and then you'll hear some ways to respond in worship. Immediately after the message, you can join us live on Instagram or Facebook as a way to respond through song. Here's Hannah with the text for today. My name is Hannah, and I will be reading the text for today, Mark 2, 18 through 28. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. 
One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Mark 2, 18-28 Good morning, my name is Claude, and uh, my wife Meredith and I are the lead pastors here at Centerway Church. Uh, really excited that you have the opportunity to be with us this morning as we continue in our series, Questions and Answer. It's a journey through the beginning part of Mark, and uh, this morning, uh, specifically, we're wrapping up the second chapter of Mark. As you just heard read, it's Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 28, and uh, the message is entitled, Rest. So, Questions and Answer, Rest. Um, I did a lot of... Uh, bike riding when I was growing up. We would every once in a while go to a friend's house and, and ride a dirt bike, but um, for the most part, we rode bicycles when I was younger. And uh, there was a road, a dead-end road that I lived on, and then down the road from us, uh, there was another road that was kind of closed off in a similar fashion. It ended in a dead-end and there were a whole mess of trails that we could ride our bikes through uh, growing up. And so I have a lot of memories of riding uh, bikes through there. And uh, there was this one spot in particular that got a lot of traffic from actual dirt bikes. And so obviously dirt bikes can do a lot more uh, than just a bicycle. And the dirt bikes would kind of make these ruts. And so we could ride through the woods in these ruts on our bicycles because of um, the, the path that they had made. And there was this one spot in particular where they kind of had some jumps. And in particular, as you turn into this area, there's like a ditch and um, the ditch goes down and comes back up steep, like so steep that now I think I could probably stand in the bottom of it. My head wouldn't be level with the ground. It was that deep. And then I could probably touch the sides because it was that kind of narrow. So like if you went down in a bike, it was like right back up. It was pretty intense. And especially at our age, we thought it was like the most dangerous, craziest thing, you know, you could ever do. The problem and the real fearful part is if you stayed in the rut, as you came around, you would, you know, certainly die was the assumption because it would go down so quickly and it was so steep. There's no way you'd make it out on the other side. So one of the things that we would do is we'd follow this rut all the way through the woods. And then when we'd get to this spot where there's this ditch, um, we'd get out of the rut just before it. And we'd be able to take a little bit of a safer route through this ditch and get up on the other side and have some, you know, fun through the other, uh, the trails through the woods. The temptation is to stay in the rut as long as you can because of how smooth it is. And so you can go so much faster. And, you know, every time it would just kind of tempt all of us. And I had a friend who could not resist temptation and he's going along and we're over on the other side and he's coming up from behind and he's going faster than any of us have gone. And so we're like, get out of the rut, get out of the rut. And he's like, I'm stuck. And I'm smiling even saying it because ah, I wish... You ever wish if you're around my age, like, you know, 30, um, I'm lying, I'm 40 and I don't really care. Well, I'm 43. 
Am I 43? Yeah, 43. And so uh, <laughs> it's funny. I don't even care so much. So I don't remember. And uh, in either case, I wish we had cameras like the way we have them now on our phones and stuff like that. So we could record some of the absolute craziest things that I did growing up. But of course, they're just stories. And so I wish I had a video of this. He's coming down this trail at full bore and we're all screaming, get out of the rut, get out of the rut. And he's like, I can't. And he's trying to hop out, but he's already gone past the spot that's lower that we all came out of because he wanted to go faster. And so he's trying to pull his bike out of this rut and it's just too deep. And so uh, I should say he doesn't have any brakes on his bike. He thought it was pretty cool that he didn't have brakes and a lot of the kids had taken the brakes off their bikes. And so he's going along and the option is to jump off the bike or just ride it through, ride it through the ditch of death, which is what we called it. <laughs> and so he's coming up on this thing and in a moment of brilliance, he just gives it a couple more pumps. Like, listen, if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna go as hard and as fast as I can. He goes down all the way to the bottom and comes up. And not only does he make it to the other side, his bike goes right up into the air. He literally shoots right up in the air. And we all thought like, it was like legend that if one of us could get going fast enough, would it be possible that in a moment of brilliance, our bicycle could actually do a flip and we could land it and then come up out of the ditch? Like it was just something we joked about, something we hoped for. And here our friend mid air up, and spoiler alert, he does not do a flip. I don't know if he was trying or not, but he goes right up into the air and just sort of stalls in the air upside down. And with the full weight of his bicycle and his limp body, he falls right straight down, boom, on his shoulders. The bike collapses on top of him. He's screaming. We all run over and we slide down into this ditch because it was so steep you couldn't even go down. Like you slid down into it. And so he's sliding down and he's doing that thing. You know that thing where you get the breath knocked out of you, the air is knocked out of you? He's going. <laughs> and so it's horrifying as much as it is funny because we're all trying to get him to calm down. But the fact that he's doing it, like we know he's probably okay because he's just flailing his arms and legs around and he's trying to catch his breath. And so as he's kind of, you know, trying to get his breath, he all of a sudden composes himself and he goes, I was, I was stuck in the rut. <laughs> we all just bust out laughing. He ended up being all right. And uh, it's just, it's one of those things that I share with you this morning, because the only difference between him and us is that he knew he was stuck in a rut. Most of us aren't even aware of the ruts we're stuck in. The question I want to ask you as we jump into the text this morning is this, why is it so easy to get stuck in a rut? Why is it so easy to get stuck in a rut? Well, at face value, I assume the answer is rather obvious. You know, you do something the same long enough and it kind of forms a rut. Now, not in the physical sense per se, but maybe just in the rhythm of your life. You're doing something the same long enough and all of a sudden it just becomes easier to remain in the rut. You kind of put it on autopilot. You're going through the motions. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the formation of a rut is sometimes celebrated as a welcomed friend, you know, like I finally have a schedule or I need a schedule. Like I just need me a good rut. <laughs> I remember hauling wood most of my childhood and, um, you know, as we would move wood that was split 
to a pile where we would then stack it. Sometimes we were using a wheelbarrow. And I'll tell you, the first couple trips with a wheelbarrow were always devastating. It would catch on things. It would tip, fall, whatever. And at some point, I'd go back and forth enough to where a rut would start to form. And it would be like, oh, finally, I could just put it on autopilot. I don't have to worry about dumping the wheelbarrow. The rut is my friend. Now that's a physical sense, but I think we do it a lot in every area of our life. Why is it so easy to get stuck in that rut? It's simple. That which is tried, that which is known and proven, has less risk, it has less work than that which is untried, unknown, and unproven. Think about that. Like, obviously, Something that's tried and known and proven, it has less risk, it has less work involved, it's, it's just a proven path, it's, it's a rut, it's something you can put your mind on autopilot, it's riskier, it's more difficult to do something unproven, unknown, or untried. We as humans create ruts. We don't call them that, right? Like I've already mentioned, we call them different things, we call them routines, we call them schedules, in fact we might even proclaim them as Acts of efficiency. I'm efficient. That's why. I do things the same way because at some point I did the hard work on the front end and now it's the most efficient way. So I'm just on autopilot. And listen, I'm not like picking on you. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. If you're a scheduled person, a routine person, if you enjoy efficiency, I enjoy efficiency. Like those aren't negative things. They're fine. But get this. A rut isn't dangerous unless you're stuck in it, right? Like that's when a rut becomes dangerous. This kid on his bike, as he's riding along, like he's going faster, it's convenient. Like there's a lot of benefits to this rut, but when he's trying to get out and can't, it becomes dangerous. Ruts are dangerous when you're stuck in them. So the question I want you to kind of consider as we continue to move forward is, are the ruts, the schedules, the rhythms of your life Are they serving you or are you stuck in them? Are your ruts serving you or are you stuck? This morning's text is about how easy it is to get stuck in a religious or even a legalistic rut. It picks up in verse 18 through 19. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, meaning Jesus, they're coming up and speaking to Jesus. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Interesting response. We need a a little cultural context here so we can understand fully what Jesus is saying and what's taking place. First, it was, a, it was a typical practice for Jewish people to fast on a weekly basis. In fact, the, the more zealous of, uh, of, of Jewish followers will even fast two times a week was typical. So especially if they were rabbis and naturally if they were disciples of a rabbi, their disciples would then follow lead of what their rabbi would be doing. So the average Jewish person it would be a typical rhythm for them to fast. And so this question comes from a typical Jewish person. It doesn't say that it was a Pharisee or anything like that. This is just a person asking Jesus, hey, you know, I have a fair question. Uh, Why is it that you and your disciples don't fast? It's probably 
based in a little bit of confusion. This person just wants some clarity. Why is it? What am I missing? Why don't you fast? And uh, the, the main reason, obviously, is just because that's what we do. That's what we do. And Jesus responds with a wedding analogy. And that had to be super confusing. <laughs> uh, not talking about weddings and we don't fast at weddings. Where are we going with this? It had to be super confusing to those that asked the question because of what it implies about Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is saying something about himself through this analogy that has to be a little bit confusing. I'll explain. As we kind of get the full picture here, there's something else that we need to understand about the context. Jewish weddings were very festive and extravagant, very similar to the weddings that you go to probably now. The difference is they were huge social events. If you recall, or if you've been with us for any amount of time, uh, these people lived in community, in tight-knit community. Where you were born is where you were raised and where it is you'd ultimately die. So the idea that two families would then have their children marry, it means the joining of families in this tight-knit community. It was a huge deal. In fact, we're told that weddings often would last days and sometimes over a week of celebration. So this is a big deal. Weddings are a big deal. So the obvious cultural takeaway here is that it's literally unthinkable to fast during this time, especially if you were one of the guests invited, because the guests would have been waiting in anticipation. They're clearing their schedule. They're making sure that they have all the work done so that if this wedding celebration lasts into days or goes into a week, they're prepared to really celebrate. So uh, hopefully you're kind of starting to get it here. Jesus is not against fasting. He's not against fasting. He's communicating that there's a time for rejoicing and a time for mourning. Jesus is saying that they would be celebrating, that they should be celebrating because he was the one they've been waiting for. So the idea that you would fast in preparation for a, a wedding, I mean, fast during the celebration of a, of a wedding, it was absolutely culturally unthinkable. It implies that people would be waiting for Jesus, that there should be anticipation and a celebration. He's saying something about himself that had to be unsettling and confusing to the people asking. Then verse 20 goes on and it's actually a foreshadowing of his death. He then quickly kind of clarifies what he is and isn't doing in the next two analogies. So if you kind of have the, the picture here, an average Jewish person comes up and says, why aren't you fasting? Just curious, because it's kind of what we do. And he brings this analogy of the fact that they should be celebrating that Jesus is present with them, that he is the one they've been waiting for. Verse 21 through 22 says this, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the old from the new, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This person has to be thoroughly confused. In fact, maybe you're thoroughly confused as to why Jesus is jumping into these analogies. And so I'll explain in the same way that no one would ever think of mourning at a wedding. Jesus is talking about two other things that would culturally make no sense to do. 
and he's using these as examples. First one, you wouldn't sew a new patch on already shrunk garment. Like obviously um, in that day, they had one, maybe two clothing uh, cloaks that they would wear. And uh, so they were very valuable and uh, they involved a lot of work and they were expensive to repair. And so if there was ever a hole, they would repair it, but they would take caution to repair it with a piece of clothing that was as old as the clothing they're patching. Otherwise, if they patched it with a new patch and it gets washed, it would shrink and tear and make, you know, more damage than what was there. So he's using an example of something that would not make sense to do in that culture. And then he goes on with the other analogy that they would put um, new wine into uh, animal stomachs, if you will, and uh, different types of skin. So whether the, the skin was a specific stomach or history tells us a lot of different vessels were used that involved animal skins or organs where they would store wine and then allow it to ferment in that wine skin. And what would happen is the wine skin would stretch as that wine would ferment on the inside. And then that vessel once used would no longer be used to ferment wine because if you put wine in that old skin, it would swell. And obviously if it's already been swelling, then it will burst and everything gets ruined and destroyed. So again, two analogies that don't make necessarily a lot of sense in our society, but hopefully you understand now, Jesus is saying, here's some things that would not make sense to do. Jesus is saying, the old is incompatible with the new. The old is incompatible with the new. They don't mesh. They don't work together. He's doing something new and they're stuck in a rut. That's what he's communicating. He's communicating that he's here to do something new, that he's the one that they've been waiting for and he's doing something new. And if they don't get out of the rut they're in, they're going to miss it. What does it mean? Remember, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's why he has come. That's what he's been talking about in the chapters prior. He's come to proclaim the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is that the kingdom of God doesn't fit in to old Judaism. The two are incompatible. Now, don't misunderstand me because you can misunderstand a lot of things. You could take away that he's against fasting, which he's not. But you could also say that, that he's talking about something he isn't. He is not talking about a new religion. And he's also not saying that Judaism had to be rejected or that it's in some way wrong. He's saying celebrate. Celebrate. Because old Judaism has been fulfilled by him. That his presence fulfills the old covenant. He's talking about a new covenant. Jesus is setting the groundwork to connect the dots of the reality that he is doing a new thing. In fact, the next section of scripture actually gives an example of what it is that he's prefacing. And we pick that up at verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So he plucks, they pluck some heads of grain and they begin eating them. Now, they're allowed to do that. Um, you might not know that about Jewish culture, but Jewish culture says that if you're walking through a grain field, even if you don't own it, you're allowed to pluck what it is that you need for sustenance and you just keep going on your way. So they're allowed to do this. This is not stealing. All right. According to their rules, however, according to their 
religious and spiritual rules, they're not allowed to harvest on the Sabbath. So the plucking of grain, according to their rules, was harvesting. And so technically they're violating the Sabbath. They're violating the Sabbath by harvesting. You're not allowed to do that. And the Pharisees immediately challenge Jesus. And he responds with an unbelievably disruptive fashion, as is typical at this point. He responds in verse 27 and 28 that say this. And he said to them, so the Pharisees are thinking they're challenging him. He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Hmm. This is two huge, huge statements in very short verses. You might miss something with your Western or modern ears. And so I'll explain the Sabbath was made for humanity is what he's saying. So the Sabbath was very spiritual. It was very much a Jewish thing as far as what they're viewing and why it is they're correcting him. Like, listen, these are our rules. This has to do with the Mosaic covenant. And listen, there are rules and regulations and your disciples are violating them. And Jesus clarifies very quickly with a statement that would have been absolutely earth shattering. He's saying the Sabbath was made for humanity. Not, he doesn't say the Sabbath was made for Jews. I mean, they wouldn't have liked that either based on what he said next, but he's not saying it was made for Jews. He's not saying, he's saying humanity and in humanity is included Romans, Gentiles for the larger, uh, the larger descriptor. So in other words, all of humanity, Sabbath was made for all of humanity and humans, he might be kind of saying something confusing here because he's saying humans, the Sabbath in fact, is not a religious thing. Humans need the Sabbath. It's a humanity thing. It's a humanity thing. Now, again, I'm going to explain a little bit more. Jesus is clarifying something for them and for us. This is what he's saying. They, us, you, me, humans need rest from our work. We were created for a rhythm of rest. So he's removing legalism and religion from the conversation. They're stuck in a rut. They're stuck in a legalistic rut that's causing them to be blind to what it is that Jesus is actually doing and saying. It was created, Sabbath was created for more than a day off. I think even in Christendom, and maybe you consider yourself a Christ follower today as you listen or watch, it might be easy to be like, oh, hey, I definitely partake in the Sabbath. Like, I take a day of rest. Like, there's just whew, a day where I'm like, oh, I'm just so tired. And I do the best I can to take a day off. But Sabbath is more than a day off. Sabbath actually means a deep rest and a peace. A peace. They're enforcing the Sabbath but they don't understand it. They're attempting to enforce something that they've made kind of legalistic. Jesus says, so the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, 
you don't understand the Sabbath. Huge insult. Listen, enforcers of the law, you don't understand the Sabbath. It's not just for you. It's for all of humanity. And by the way, I know this because I, Jesus, am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of deep rest and peace. Make no mistake, Jesus is saying in this text, I, Jesus, am the source of the deep rest that you need. Jesus is the peace you're searching for. We've kind of, even in our society, have kind of perverted this idea of Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, I am the answer. I am the answer. I'm the source. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, after the world was created, God says, it's finished. And he saw that it was good. And he rested. He rested. The deep rest of Sabbath means to be so satisfied with your work that you declare that it is good and you leave it alone. You say, it's good. I did the best that I could and now I'm going to rest. It's satisfaction. It's a deep peace and rest. I don't think a lot of us really practice that. We take a day off in order to do all the things that need to be done that we didn't get done during the week. Or we take a day off so that we can rest in the sense that maybe we sleep in or take a nap or stare at social media or whatever it is that we deem disengagement. But that's not what it was created for. It's for a deep rest and peace to be satisfied in a work that's finished. But we're never done with our work, right? Like, doesn't that seem impossible? In fact, if you're efficient, if you have schedules, if you have routines, you might look at that and say, listen, this is a poor use of my time. Like, I will rest when I'm done. And if that means that I don't rest longer because I'm not finished yet, then I'm going to continue to work as hard and as long as I can. Listen, you can't rest from something that has your identity and your worth attached to it. Let me say that again. You cannot rest from something that has your identity and your worth attached to it. If your identity is in your job or in your role as parent or as student or as daughter or son or whatever the role that you find yourself in, athlete, musician, whatever it might be, if your identity and your worth is attached to that, you will never rest from it. It will hover over you. The pressure will literally crush you on a daily basis. You will always know the to-do list that's waiting. You'll feel the stress ongoing. It's what our society experiences all the time. But listen, Creation wasn't the last time that God uttered, it is finished. Jesus on the cross, as he paid the price for my sin and yours, as he breathed his last, he declared, it is finished. It's finished. Jesus was declaring that he completed the work for you. 
He completed the work for me, the the work that we could not complete. Listen, Jesus is saying, rest in my work. This isn't about getting your to-do list done. Jesus is saying the Sabbath was created for all of humanity. And it was created for all humanity because all of humanity is waiting and should be celebrating Jesus' presence. Because he has come to bring the kingdom of God where the new covenant will come. And he'll bring the new covenant when he dies the death that you and I deserve. And he declares that it is finished because he has finished the work that we could not. Will we rest in that? Listen, God is satisfied with you. You can be satisfied with your life. Not because of your efforts, not because of the to-do lists, not because of anything other than the person and work of Jesus. God loves you because you're you. Broken. Falling apart like a mess, however you find yourself, the top of a mountain or in the lowest valley of the low. God loves you. He loves you and he's satisfied with you. He completed the work that you could never complete on your own. And it's because of that rest. It's because of that that we can, that we can experience Sabbath. The place where we say, okay, okay, I can rest in the gospel. I can rest in who it is that Jesus is and what it is that he has done for me. Listen, when we rest in the gospel, then and only then are we free to break free from the ruts, to begin to dream about what it is that God has for us, who it is that he's created us to be, what risks we can take. We're allowed to begin to think outside the box because we aren't in the rote nine to five. We aren't, we aren't on the gerbil wheel. I had gerbils growing up. Oh gosh, they stunk so bad. But they would, they would just run on this wheel. They just run mindlessly. They would, when they were done running on the wheel, they'd go over and drink some water. They would sometimes eat a little. They would then poo. Then they'd sleep. And then they'd get up and run on the wheel again. That sounds a lot like everyone's life. <laughs> Like we just, we just go through the motions. We run on the wheel. We do work, we do work, we do work, we do work. And then we eat a little, then we sleep a little, then we poo a little, then we go to bed and we wake up and we do it again. And God is saying, I didn't create you for that. There's something bigger. Get out of the rut. Get out of the rut. Take a God risk. Dream a little. Realize that I laid down my life to finish the work that really needs to be completed. And if you would rest in that completed work, it would give you the freedom to leverage every part of who you are towards the furtherance of his kingdom. You see, it changes your perception. If you're not working for work, then you can begin working for other things. You can do the things that God's called you to do. You can leverage your finances for the furtherance of the kingdom. You can leverage your talents and, and your time towards eternal things. It changes your perspective, but, but maybe you're stuck in a rut. And these, these people were stuck in a religious, legalistic rut. 
and they just couldn't see outside of it. So I want to challenge you. Every week we talk about what it is that the text requires of us. And this week, I want to challenge you to consider this question. Where do I need to take a God risk? Where do I need to take a God risk? So many parts of your life that are probably in a rut for the good, and maybe in some cases for the bad. Are you trapped? Is the rut serving you or are you serving the rut? Because you can break free because of who God is and because of who he says you are. So where do you need to take a God risk? Maybe for you this morning or wherever you find yourself as you listen or watch this, maybe the God risk is to surrender your life, to allow Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life. You live your life to try to maybe gather things for yourself or maintain your position as Lord and leader of your own world. So I want to challenge you, maybe this morning you want to surrender your life. That's the God risk. It can be as easy as praying a prayer. In fact, it just sounds a little something like this. Asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins, acknowledge that you're a sinner, that he died the death that you deserve. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and to come and be the Lord and leader of your life. That's where it begins. In fact, if if you've prayed that prayer or some prayer similar to that, I want to challenge you if you're with us live to just click that request a prayer button and you'll go into a private chat with a host so that we can talk to you about the next steps and we want to celebrate with you. If you're listening to this later or watching it later, I want to encourage you to go to the next steps page of our website and let us know about this decision that you've made and sign up for a next step that makes sense. If this morning you find yourself already having surrendered to God and Maybe for you, the risk is a spiritual conversation with a loved one, a friend. Maybe just risking something and resting in the reality that their idea of who you are doesn't determine your own self-worth. So maybe it's a spiritual conversation. Maybe it's sharing a message, one of these or a different message with a person that you love or care about so that they can hear something of truth. Maybe it's a financial risk to say, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leverage my, my treasure towards something eternal. I've worked hard and what does it all sum up to if, if I can't leverage it towards the furtherance of the kingdom? Maybe it's a missional risk. I don't know necessarily what it is, but I want to challenge you to consider and to ask the Lord to search your heart. That you would rest in your identity as child of God and maybe risk a little something for the Lord that loves you as deeply as he does. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would search our hearts, Lord, that we would have a moment of realization and awareness that you have finished the work and that we can rest in that finished work, that we can step back from the chaos of our world and realize that that which is eternal, that which we could not accomplish for ourselves has been completed. And because of that, we can risk. We can risk our time, our talent, our treasure. We can lean in, we can dream. And so Lord, I pray that you would cause us to dream a little, that we would be people that would take God risks for the furtherance of the kingdom, Lord. We simply declare ourselves available. Pray that you speak to us as we go through this week. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
want to encourage you for opportunities to take God risks. In the meantime, know that we're praying for you and we're excited as we join next week to wrap up this series, Questions and Answer. See you then. Hi, everybody. I'm Meredith. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. We'd like to take just a minute after the message to encourage you to respond to the text that you just heard and allow it to truly transform you. As you consider taking a God risk this week, remember that making yourself available to what God has for you is an act of worship. You know, oftentimes we think of singing as worship, and that's definitely true, but there are many other ways to worship this week, and we encourage you to do that. That said, we are going to worship through song today, and we get to do that together if you're with us live. Uh, if you're watching or listening to the message later, no worries. You can find the songs that we're about to sing on Spotify. Just search Centerway Church and look for our questions and answer playlist. But for those gathered on the online platform, we'll see you live on Facebook or Instagram in just a few minutes.